Hello, this is Dan Linna. Welcome to Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. My guest today is Dan Rodriguez, the Harold Washington Professor at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Dan is also the chair of the ABA Innovation Center. Previously, Dan was the dean of Northwestern Law School from 2012 through 2018. Before that, Dan also served as the dean of the University of San Diego School of Law and spent time as a law professor at the University of Texas at Austin and the University of California, Berkeley. Dan was also the 2014 president of the Association of American Law Schools. And finally, and most important for our audience, Dan will soon join us on the Legal Talk Network as a host on Law Technology Now. Dan, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Dan, and looking forward to joining the group. Yeah, it's great to have you. Now, before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. Headnote helps lawyers get paid faster with their compliant payments and accounts receivables automation platform. To learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently, visit them at headnote.com. That's headnote.com. All right, Dan, there's uh, there are a lot of things I'd like to talk with you about here on this podcast. And and but you know, and I want to talk a little bit about your your background and your journey to all the things that you're doing. But but first, let's start with uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion about innovation technology in the, in the legal industry. Uh, we're hearing it kind of from all corners, and and uh, you, you've been a leader in this space uh, in in legal education, and and more generally now in your role with the ABA as well. And, and one of the things I'd like to kind of take a do is from your perspective, just take a step back and and think about. I mean, there's a lot of activity: law firms, corporate legal departments, law schools, law law companies, legal tech startups what are we really doing here, right? What's the bigger picture mission and vision, would you say? Where are we trying to take the the legal profession writ large, not not just the lawyers, but everyone law uh, for the future? So there's a lot there. And let me <laughs> let me try to break it into a, a few parts, and, and I'm really looking forward to this discussion. So to begin with how you started out that question, there's been a lot lots of discussion. There's been less action. Not a criticism, right? Uh, you 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 crawl and walk before you run, and I think that the juxtaposition that I and others draw between uh, opinion leaders and, and action leaders, I think, is critical in this in this regard. And I hope I hope I won't seem excessively humble when I say that you know I've I've tried to marry both of them, but but I'm I'm really anxious to move from the from the opinion leadership to the action leadership. So I'll I'll, I'll focus sort of on, on really what's been been my preoccupation for for a number of years, as the introduction suggested, and that is moving ahead with innovation in, in legal education. I think the bottom line is we, we play a critical role as legal educators, whether we're deans or law professors and the like, in training the next generation of legal professionals. Uh, I think we historically, and by which I mean over the course of a century, we do a really good job. Uh, we in the legal academy, and I'd say, if I may, we in American legal education. But, uh, but times are changing. Uh, and what's particularly changing is the dynamics of innovation involving technology, especially globalization and other forces in the legal profession. And legal education on the whole has been a slow uh, uh, and unsteady in, in, meeting those, in meeting those challenges. And so just to kind of initiate this discussion, what I would say is this, much of the change that's happening in the legal e- ecosystem has been change that's uh, been happening in a variety of silos. Legal education being one of those silos, uh, big law being another of those silos, et cetera, et cetera. What we are doing now, and I think what makes the present and the near-term future so exciting, is moving out of our silos and having the kind of collective discussions and iterated experiments that lead us to make the kinds of changes that affect and impact the legal ecosystem uh, as a whole. And that is a necessary not sufficient, but a necessary condition for really fomenting and facilitating any meaningful change in how we practice law and how we deliver legal services. Well, so I'm going to go back a little bit then to this leadership idea and where are we trying to go. And and it occurs to me that that inside of the law school, inside of the law firm where I previously was, and, and as a lawyer, I believe law is important. But then I'll sometimes go to these technology conferences. I'll hear people talking about grand challenges and and uh, you know hunger and and um, gender disparity, things like that around the world. And I don't hear too many people thinking about the law as a grand challenge. And and I I wonder uh, now. I think that I've, to me a part of that comes down to maybe we're just 
not doing a great job as stewards of the law and the legal profession and, and the things that we do, kind of explaining to the rest of the world, well, what does rule of law really mean? What What is the bigger thing that we're actually really trying to do here versus just, let's say, make NDAs move faster and uh, things like that? So I agree with everything you said. In fact, I would take, to, take out the maybe. I, I think that collectively, those of us in the law space, including but not limited to legal educators, have historically not done a very good job at communicating the rule of law, uh, the, the the nature and scope of, of law, uh, what legal institutions mean, not only their content but how they uh, how they are created and their impact on on the development of our social system, our development on uh, our econo- our economy, our political system, and the like. I don't mean that that there's been never any interdisciplinary work an interdisciplinary conversation, but there really is uh, a difficulty in translation. And I would say more fundamentally, a lack of will and energy that's been devoted among those of us who've had the privilege of spending our lives and careers in the law in really being able to have the kind of dialogue that will enable those outside the four corners of the law, be they economists, social planners, certainly technologists, to understand the contributions uh, that law makes to the to the infrastructure that enables folks to develop a prosperous economy, to develop a, a, an efficient society, and to enable the uh, to focus on technology in particular, enable the production and dissemination of technology and technological innovation for the benefit of society. So we have our work cut out for us, but it's uh, it's a, a wonderful time to be able to engage in, in in this kind of conversation in order to enable progress to be made. Well, thinking about then that that bigger picture mission, I mean, what do you think are some of the most important initiatives that are kind of happening in, the, in, in this space right now? Maybe some of the stuff you're doing in connection with the ABA, but things you're seeing in law schools and other other spaces. I mean, where do, where do you think, well, well, where are you focusing your own attention, I guess, is maybe the question. So it's, a, it's sort of a tale of two, of two uh, focal points, uh, uh, just if uh, to, to speak broadly. Within the legal academy, that is within law schools, what I and many of my colleagues have done, colleagues around Northwest colleagues around many law schools with, with which I, I uh, interact is is really reshaping and reforming our programs and our curriculum in a way that enables us to take advantage of and really build in uh, so much of the critical impact and role of technology of uh, other interdisciplinary learning uh, I take no credit for this for this locution but, uh, but the development of this idea of training the T-shaped lawyer, which I know you've been very, uh, very involved in and played a very important leadership role. Amani Smathers at Michigan Amani State. Amani Smathers wrote a, gets, you know, gets the kudos exactly <laughs> yeah. for coining that term. And, and, and in a nutshell, this is probably something you've talked about in your program before, but just to remind the listeners, it's this idea, right, of, of a deep grounding. You think of the, the, the vertical part of the T in law. We should always be, and we've long mm-hmm. been, about uh, developing uh, skills to enable folks to think like a lawyer, to to have sub- substantive legal expertise, particularly given how complex law is. But what we've often forgotten and are now starting to really understand is the horizontal part of that T is critical as well. And we re- really need the kind of building in of insights from other, from other fields, uh, understanding of things that are so critical in legal practice, as you well know, like project management, like uh, lean thinking and all of that building into our curriculum. So, so there's more to say, but let me just say this is a, a wonderful time for substantial engagement and reform in the legal academy. At the same time, this has been another focal point of, of my uh, energy and why I'm so privileged to be able to work on the Center for Innovation, is to basically engage with stakeholders and constituencies outside of legal education in order to have the kind of dialogue that helps us understand whether uh, and to what extent what we're doing is relevant to the changing dynamic of the profession, and at the same time, hearkening back to your earlier question, helping translate and communicate what we are doing in training the next generation of legal professionals uh, to individuals who are the consumers of our product, if I can be so crude, that product being the graduates of our, of our, of our law schools. So this is a wonderful time, and the center is one vehicle among many. Uh, to be able to uh, facilitate that da- uh, dialogue and also act as a catalyst for significant changes in the delivery of legal services, many of which, not all of which, many of which are technology-driven. 
which is to say that they're changes enabled by and facilitated by the rise of new kinds of technologies, which I'm sure we'll be able to, to talk about a lot. So I see those roles as, as interacting, the, the, the role and the, and the performance of the Center for Innovation and my work in legal education, but they are two different, different uh, venues for, uh, for really engaging in this, in this kind of uh, change leadership and change management. Well, so let's let's uh, stick on the discussion about the ABA Innovation Center. And uh, I mean, what do you see as the what what is the mission of the ABA Innovation Center? So let me start with a little bit of history, and I promise I'll keep it brief. A number of years ago, about five years ago, the then president of the ABA, a real visionary leader, William Hubbard, created uh, as president this commission, the Commission on the Future of Legal Services. Now, the world does not need yet another task force uh, from the ABA just to have a task force. This was really a, a, a an unusual and remarkable venture in which uh, President Hubbard charged us, and I had the privilege to serve on that commission, to really think outside the box of ways in which the, the American Bar Association could facilitate improvement in the delivery of legal services through appropriate uses of technology, through appropriate regulatory reform, and through acting as a, as a mechanism for facilitating really good thinking, academic research and applied research on, on, uh, on legal innovation. Could talk about more details of that, but just that's sort of the big picture of why the commission uh, operated. It went out of business by design uh, uh, about three years later, issued a final report, pushed forward a number of reforms, but perhaps one of its biggest uh, outputs was the creation of this new center within the ABA, the Center for Innovation. Its mission is essentially threefold. One is to collect data, uh, uh, do analysis, uh, be, a, be a, a synthesizer of research that's being done throughout the legal profession about new innovations and new changes that can improve the delivery of legal services and access to justice. Second, to create uh, relationships with organizations, firms, entities uh, within the ABA and outside of the ABA to facilitate uh, various targeted innovations. So one example, uh, for example, is the creation of these fellowship programs, what we call next-gen fellows that work with organizations like Microsoft, like the Legal Services Corporation, like a number of law schools in order to work on, on specific projects to advance, advance the ball. And last but certainly not least, the center acts as a catalyst for change, working with other organizations on specific, impactful uh, reform uh, measures. Like, like for example, we helped uh, work with uh, with collaborators at Institute Illinois of Technology and uh, Stanford to develop uh, an app to facilitate the ability of individuals who are recovering from natural disasters to learn about uh, the titles to their property and to develop mechanisms to enable them to be successful clients uh, in working with individuals uh, and law firms to, uh, to, to help them uh, in periods of crises. So, so it's, been, uh, it's a new journey. Uh, the, the center has only been up and running for about three years, but it's really doing uh, important work under the rubric of the ABA, but with stakeholders in a variety of different of different uh, walks of life in order to facilitate real innovation in uh, in the legal profession. You may have heard that lawyers tend to be skeptical and maybe a source of skepticism. Um, well, one of the things I've heard when, when the ABA Innovation Center came about is like, well, wait a second, really? The ABA is going to lead our innovation efforts? Now, you've, you've place the bet with the with the center and, and you see the promise there. I mean, why should the lawyers who are skeptical um, have, what, what reasons can you give them to see how they should get engaged in helping with this endeavor? As you said, the ABA Innovation Center intends to be a catalyst. Like, why should more people be working with the ABA Innovation Center? So uh, I share your description, your depiction <laughs> of the skepticism that lawyers have. And if I can muster uh, up some uh, diplomacy, let me say <laughs> with some care that those who are members of the ABA, both entities within the ABA and lawyers who are members of that very important organization, uh, perhaps have outsized skepticism about uh, when they hear things like uh, the, the application of technology to uh, legal practice, when they hear about efforts to reform regulation, which I hope we'll have a chance to talk about, and other kinds of uh, devices. So uh, yes, no one should uh, assume 
that uh, that the creation, uh, first the commission, and second the Center for Innovation, was greeted with rose petals thrown at our feet, uh, or mm-hmm. was regarded as a no-brainer. Of course, uh, uh, the ABA is in favor of innovation. On the contrary, there was quite a lot of skepticism. And I'll simply make this point. There are many, many uh, uh, vehicles uh, in law schools, in law firms, in organizations, uh, in which folks are working hard uh, for innovation and on in, uh, innovative strategies, technology-related and otherwise. But what to me is rewarding about my work and the work of the other council members who work with the center about the Center for Innovation in particular is just where you started and that it is an entity within the ABA so that we have the ability and not to not to be Pollyannish about it because the skepticism is still there, but we have the ability and the charge to to try to respond to that skepticism, to work constructively with uh, with uh, entities and, and, and individuals, and to really bottom line is put the ABA on the map as an organization that is in favor of innovation in the delivery of legal services and pushing forward the kinds of innovations that will enhance access to justice. It's not just solving its reputational difficulties, although that's that's a factor of it, a feature of it, but it's really putting the largest important organization of lawyers in the United States, if not the world, on record as being in favor of the kinds of changes and innovations that are critical to moving our moving our professional uh, profession forward. But it is uh it's uh it's a retail effort, uh, not only a wholesale effort, and it does have to acknowledge, our efforts have to acknowledge the fact that we have a lot of education uh, to, to, to conduct. We, uh, no, no doubt about it, there's a political valence to, to some of our work, and that skepticism is not simply going to wither away because someone planted a flag in the ground and said, oh, the ABA has a center uh, for, uh, for innovation that is up and running. We still have a lot of work to do. You mentioned regulatory reform, and, and there's a lot happening right now in California, Utah, Arizona, uh, Illinois here. Some things are starting to happen as well. Where do you think we'll find ourselves? And I mean, what's the journey going to look like here, right? I, I don't think anyone thinks that we're going to wake up on January 1st, 2020, and suddenly we're, we're really on the precipice of the landscape completely changing. How do you kind of maybe expect things to, to play out? I think the journey could best be sort of in, encapsulated in the the famous and perhaps overused quotation from the great Justice Louis Brandeis, who talked about federalism uh, in the context of uh, laboratories of experimentation uh, and and the notion that we would see experimentation across these laboratories of our states. And I think that's a very good description of what we're seeing and what we will see in the short and intermediate term future, uh, and maybe even the long term future. Uh, in our American states. So the states you mentioned and a number of other states are actively embarking on the project of rethinking their regulatory paradigms and their regulatory structure. Because uh, let's face it, uh, the, the regulation of legal services in the United States is by and large handled at the state level under the rubric of decision-making of state Supreme Courts, and notwithstanding the the important impact of national organizations like the American Bar Association, to say nothing of Congress and others, most of the regulatory action has long been and continues to be action that's carried out in the various states. What's really remarkable about the last few years, indeed the last several months, is the burst of energy that is underway in a variety of, of states. Now, you asked uh, uh, for a prediction. I think the prediction is a prediction of experimentation, uh, where some states are going to push uh, far ahead with significant, some might even say radical regulatory reform. Uh, others are going to, to be more methodical in, in some way. Uh, uh, perhaps their efforts will be in more fits and starts. There will be early adopters there will also be resistors. And if I could bring the conversation back to the ABA and, and sort of national leadership, what we can do as, as an organization, the ABA, and what other, what other uh, thought leaders and action leaders across the country can do is twofold. One is to encourage experimentation, in my view. I think experimentation is a, is a good thing. What Brandeis talked about about laboratories really is onto something critically important. But second, and this is equally important, make sure that we collect data and, and look hard at these experiments and make sure that regulatory changes, if they are going to, to actually be carried out, uh, be evidence-based. 
and that we can be in a position not simply to champion these reforms, because that's an over, overly simplistic way to think about it, but to measure and evaluate these reforms to make sure that they are meeting the needs of consumers and of lawyers uh, uh, in, uh, in, in particular states. Maybe at the end, and I'll, then I'll, I'll stop on this point, mm-hmm. maybe in the end we'll see some convergence. That is, there'll be some uh, best practices that will emerge from these reforms, and that ultimately it will be not a top-down process, but a process that a year, five years, 10 years, maybe 20 years from now, we can say, we collected a lot of data, we tried out these various experiments, and here's what's really working in this space. Well, there's a few things in there that I'd like to like to follow up on. I, I think one of the first things is is just again to kind of ask why, right? And and I know one of the reasons that's been discussed is improving access to justice. And the stats I generally use are the 80% of the impoverished and the half the middle class that lack access to legal services uh, in the U.S. And whether they're exactly that or not, we know that there are issues. There's also lawyers who uh, I mean, we tend to talk a lot about the hundred ninety thousand dollar a year associate jobs, but that's not the majority of lawyers in the U.S. And uh, most uh, solo and small firm lawyers are, 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 I think it's fair to say generally kind of struggling in this marketplace, figuring out ways to, to try to have a more robust marketplace that is better for them at the same well and the, and the customers. And I mean, does that really encapsulate the why is like to, is it, is it really focused on access to justice is the, is the most important thing. And, and how do we get more people on board with the bigger picture mission, what we're trying to accomplish in the way that it could actually be beneficial for the lawyers? You put your finger on it very well, and so let me let me just reflect back on what you said. I, I absolutely agree with it. Uh, first, and in many respects, foremost in answering the why question is the access to justice gap. And whatever the the quibbling that folks might have about the content and the statistics, uh, what we can all agree upon is that what we've been doing historically, while it's made some progress, is not solving the problem. And indeed, the the stickiness, the endurance of these uh, very bad conditions. That is the gap between consumers who really need access to legal relief and legal services in order to benefit from this wonderful scheme of the rule of law, uh, particularly in the civil and the administrative justice system. Not to minimize problems in the criminal justice system, but we have some paradigms. We have Gideon versus Wainwright. We have public defenders, and we have uh, at least ways of addressing some of these challenges. In the civil and the administrative justice system, it's chaos at best and maldistribution at worst. So uh, regulatory reform, legal innovation that looks to, if not cure, then to improve and close, uh, improve access to justice and close the access to justice gap is a critical piece of the puzzle. But you mentioned the second puzzle, and I think it's important to also understand that developments of innovations that can enhance the ability of lawyers, who you're quite right, are not, the vast majority of them are not associates, much less partners at at AMLA 100 law firms. Uh, not that that group should be neglected either, but to really provide the kinds of innovations that facilitate the ability of lawyers to, to practice effectively uh, at the top of their bar license, as it were, to, to, to deploy technology and other, and other innovations to enhance their practice is critical. And I want to say this, I really truly believe it. The kinds of innovations that a number of stakeholders have been pushing, including but not limited to regulatory innovation and regulatory reform, can promise to enhance the well-being of lawyers. That's what's often missing in this discussion. It's seen erroneously as a zero-sum trade-off. That is, regulatory reform benefits tech companies, regulatory reform benefits AMLAW 100 lawyers, regulatory reform benefits, et cetera, but at the detriment and at the cost of the well-being and the welfare of lawyers. That is a trope. It's a, it's a bad and, in many respects, dangerous narrative. It's a narrative that stood uh, powerfully in the way of regulatory reform, particularly at the level of ABA and other organizations, until we can effectively answer that question, what's in it for the lawyers? We are, those of us who are pushing ahead on regulatory reform and innovation, are gonna face this tsunami, right, of, of opposition uh, from, from lawyers who, uh, who acknowledge the access to justice gap, but also quite understandably are concerned about their welfare and their self-interest. Well, so what's your best answer to that question right now, right? If you're a small firm or solo lawyer in Illinois, in California, Utah, Arizona, what is your best answer to them on why they should support this then right now? 
so I, I can I can give you know platitudes. Maybe I already have. But let me <laughs> let me try to give a very specific answer. And you're familiar with the data that Clio has has mm-hmm. collected. Yeah. That uh, that really is really quite illuminating. And I know it's an ongoing iterative process about you know the hours in a day for for let's say a, a solo practitioner or a lawyer in a small firm spends on on activities not specifically billable time that's providing service to clients and it's really extraordinary right and and, and illuminating when you see the inefficiencies uh, uh, despite best efforts of lawyers in the, in those particular settings because of the impediments of project management of allocation of time of travel, of disconnect, something that Rebecca Sandifer has written about, about you know the difficulty of individuals even understanding that their problem is a legal problem, et cetera. Certainly, as Clio and other organizations that have looked at this understand, there's technology solutions right to to a lot of these particular issues. And if and if innovation was able to take place that not only facilitates but incentivizes uh, uh, lawyers in those kinds of settings to utilize technology to basically manage their businesses because they are managing businesses, right? They're not just practicing law in a much more efficient way. That has enormous benefits, not only for the consumers, the clients, but for those particular lawyers. So that's not just, here's an app we can build for, for, for your benefit, but it's also, let's think about the legal ecosystem and the way in which innovation can incentivize the kinds of adaptations that lawyers can have that will enable them to practice law more efficiently. Now, there's some heavy lifts involved, and so of course one of the regulatory innovations that you hear a lot about is the imposition of, of requirements of technological competency, and, and you know, and that gets some pushback too. Old dogs, new tricks argument. You know, more uh, information about technology is going to end up cleaning my clock. All these, all these, but those are narratives. And if you really drill down, the ability of of the use of these of these innovations and these devices can really facilitate much more uh, greater efficiencies on the part of lawyers. That's one example. Well, Dan, I want to talk a little bit. You mentioned legal technology and wanted to dive a little deeper into that. I also want to talk about leadership, change management, your experience in, 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 in law schools particularly. But before we do that, before we continue our interview with Dan Rodriguez, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls due to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. And we're back. Thank you for joining us. We're with Dan Rodriguez, a law professor at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law and the former dean here at the law school. Dan, we've been talking a lot about technology. I want to to jump in on a a specific uh, topic. There's a lot of discussion about the impact that technology is going to have on on the future of of lawyering. And uh, I've got my own perspective on it. So maybe I can kind of set this up and and see what what you think as far as, I mean, I I think a few few years ago, we we still see some of these kind of uh, AI judges, robot lawyer sort of headlines. Uh, it surprises me we don't have more discussion actually about that because I think the response has been, and there've been a few academic articles that say, no, 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 these technologies aren't going to replace us. Uh, we tell stories, we are, have empathy, we can give clients hugs. And so that's not going to happen, or it's going to be kind of the robots plus the, the humans. And uh, I tend I think that's probably right. What that brighter future looks like, but we're not spending nearly enough time. It's not going to be today's lawyers that are working with the, the data analytics and the technology in the future. And why isn't there more discussion about, I mean, my sense is technology is going to have a pretty big impact on the things that we do as lawyers, but I don't think we're having a discussion. And I sometimes worry that as much as we might be doing in some places, we're maybe not doing nearly enough. I think we're being defeated in our efforts to have the kinds of construction, constructive discussion, which I agree hundred percent we need to be having by uh, sort of by two false narratives mm-hmm. and one uh a little bit of a uh, of an oversimplification one false narrative is generated by the lawyers and and those in the legal ecosystem and the others by the technologists so let me start with the lawyers narrative and and and, and you summarized it well in essence 
It's the fear that we're going to be replaced by robot lawyers. If I could, you and I could wave a magic wand and, and ban the use of that phrase, maybe we would contribute. <laughs> we can't. But it's it's this notion that uh, folks, machines are coming and that they will not only destabilize the legal uh, the legal system, disrupt, as it were, but it will basically just uh, uh, leave uh, lawyers in their wake. Uh, judges, too, uh, creates a, an important and powerful uh, uh, head headwind against discussing and describing these changes. It's aided by and relates to the narrative again that you mentioned that what we're going to basically do by replacing lawyers is replace humans and lose all the values that we associate with uh, justice and the acceptability of justice, which is f- still fundamentally and always will be a, a, a essentially a human process. The false narrative on the technology side, right, is that we're already there, is that the capacity of artificial intelligence and deep learning in particular is right before us, and it's just a failure of nerve. So it's it's basically uh, in reference to, of course, a, a, a fabled uh, prediction, this notion, Ray Kurzweil's notion of singularity, it's notion that, oh, we're already really there with comprehensive deep learning AI. It's just a lack of willingness of, of folks in the uh, in the marketplace to accept it, and that those who have some skepticism are just like the Luddites of a previous century. Both of those narratives are wildly exaggerated, as, 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 as you've talked a lot about and presented, and I've talked a little bit about it as well. It's first, on the, on the lawyer side, uh, the, the notion that artificial intelligence is set up to replace the human elements of, of law is fundamentally misunderstanding the technology. Let's start there. Uh, uh, not to mention, it, uh, it, it assumes a number of things about the lack of resilience of uh, the design of legal institutions not only regulation, but the whole structure of our, our of our legal ecosystem, to to uh, be able to participate actively in the development of of machine learning and AI enabled reforms, and also essentially to manage the 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 rollout and the implementation of various structures that uh, that are essential to getting the balance between uh, between automation and human learning exactly right. If I could make another just really quick point, mm-hmm. and I always try to make this when conversations uh, involve hand-wringing about the, the, the algorithmic bias and the, and the yeah. difficulties in, in AI is, compared to what? Yeah, yeah. Uh, folks have long criticized right human decision making and judicial decision making from a jurisprudential vantage point, from a social scientific vantage point, as having all sorts of flaws. Uh, human beings and judges uh, having uh, implicit biases uh, uh, or worse, uh, gender disparities, uh, a lack of understanding of fundamental facts that make uh, judging, as someone famously put it, influenced by what judges ha- have for breakfast rather than. So, but when it comes to machines, all of a sudden humans are valorized as great neutral oracles, objective decision makers, and all the problems are found in the machines and in the algorithms mm-hmm. and in the, and in the uh, AI processes. That that's really uh, inaccurate in an important sense. And let me just very briefly touch on the uh, on the technologist part. We know enough about the present state of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the like to know that we are maybe not light years, but years away from the kind of fully functioning, automated kinds of AI-enabled processes that really could, in any serious way, replace the 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 work of individuals and humans, can engage, again, in, to use the same phrase, the kind of deep learning without human agency. We may never come to that place, but folks who do this for a living, that is, in the technology side, uh, laugh at the notion that we could, with a flip of a switch, mm-hmm. right, uh, develop uh, mechanisms for the implementation of even the most simple uh, sort of justice uh, needs, uh, uh, litigation, conflict management through the through the use of AI. We're not there. We may never be there. So that also that narrative also uh, that sort of heroic the machines will save all all uh, all of humanity, like in the movies, <laughs> is is simply not our present reality. Yeah. So we're seeing 
tasks where there been some, there's been progress, like e-discovery, for example, diligence and review of contracts. And people are working on solving some of these lower level problems where like, like the NDA problem, which persists and, and many organizations are trying to solve that. And, uh, and there are people thinking about how can we really create a system where you can have transactions without having to have all this friction that comes from putting the, the contract in the place to have it. And some of those things are going to change the way lawyers practice. Now, arguably, that would create then more room for this, the role of the law. We talk about ourselves as counselors frequently, but I, uh, my experiences in the industry is we've, we don't spend, they get, get a chance to spend a lot of time being that counselor because there's so much other stuff that we do in a brute force way in the industry today. I agree with that. And now I, I want to walk back a little bit from what I said uh, before the break, not, not to change my mind, but just to give the, the other side of the coin, because I made the comment that uh, much of the developments uh, in technology and much of these innovations, regulatory innovations and all of that, uh, will enhance the well-being of lawyers, and, and we need to really have that kind of discussion so this is not seen as a zero-sum trade-off. The other side of that coin, though, is, and, and is there are going to be some innovations, there are already some innovations enabled by technology that will impact in ways not positive at the bottom line the performance of some lawyers, maybe many lawyers, who have basically made a living doing the kind of what Richard Susskind has called sort of commodified legal services, the the development of NDAs, the you know the proverbial armies of lawyers working on on civil discovery in in these in these large settings and, and others, and automation will impact the work of uh, of, of lawyers. Uh, in the same way that automation in the banking industry uh, impacted the work of bank tellers, uh, or the the fabled earlier story, like the development of the automobile uh, uh, affected the, the the work of of buggy whip manufacturers. Mm-hmm. And if we don't own that that phenomenon, we're also doing a disservice to folks who look at the labor economy and, and others. What we really though need to think about are the kinds of legal tasks that can and ought to be automated. Again, for the well being of consumers. Those, and I think there are many that can't or ought not to be. And last but not least, see the role of lawyers, including young lawyers who are just coming into the profession, being engaged with technologists in a synthetic conversation that enables, under this, again, this principle of comparative advantage that trade economists have long talked about, lawyers to do what they are the best at and that they can contribute most to the to, to the functioning of, of the delivery of legal services on the one hand, and where technologists, again, working with lawyers, can develop techniques and modules, mechanisms of, of, of automation that, uh, that provide uh, for an enhanced set of delivery of legal services, and then deal with the labor costs and the labor dislocation in the kind of complex and compassionate way that we've always dealt with mm-hmm. as an economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the impact of technology on the on the provision of uh, on the provision of of services of various different kinds. Well, so in addition to being a dean, you're known for your scholarship, particularly in administrative law in that in that area. And it's interesting because when we talk about technology, we tend to just get focused kind of on the hardest decisions, right? People say, "Oh, well, technology is not going to affect law because it can't determine whether a, a criminal defendant is innocent or guilty." It's like, whoa, whoa, slow down. Like, um, I mean, what about just even in the administrative law area and how Article One courts? Any and I know there's work happening in that space. So I'm so glad you raised that, and, uh, and I like the way you put it. You know, we uh, most ways in which individuals encounter the legal system in the U.S. and throughout the world is not the person who's been charged with a homicide and is having a trial before a, a jury. That's a tiny, sl- uh, small sliver. It's they're dealing with the administrative system. They 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 have a demand to receive uh, social security payments. They are one of the hundreds of thousands of folks who are in, uh, veterans uh, who are engaged with the uh, the tr- tremendous backlog in uh, veterans administration benefits. They are uh, you know they are at the Department of Motor Vehicles you know at the state level. They're dealing with planning commissions. They're basically administrative justice. Much of the work that's going on in the administrative justice system is work that could enormously benefit from uh, automation and from uh, uh, appropriate development of technology. And as someone who, as you point out, has been studying administrative law, writes and teaches about administrative law, I'm fascinated by the way in which we can structure 
our legal system, you mentioned Article One, maybe moving away from this paradigm that's so you know that that keeps such a grip on us that what a judge is in society is a man or a woman, more often unfortunately a man than a woman, in a robe, you know, sitting up there on a bench. Uh, uh, while the meter's running with lawyers representing both sides mm-hmm. engaging in, uh, in in dispute resolution. The more we, as is appropriate, move away that uh, from that as the paradigmatic uh, part of our legal system to where the rubber hits the road, which is individuals seeking retail justice, which is critical to them, that may be about money, it may be about their liberty, it may be about a combination of both, and use efficiency creating devices in order to enable folks to 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 benefit uh, that's enormously beneficial if I may say this we've talked a lot in this in this conversation about the work of lawyers but what some of these regulatory reforms that that, that we're talking about here in the various states you mentioned like Arizona Utah California are also looking to and this is controversial to be sure is having folks who are not lawyers, meaning folks who have not had to go through the crucible of three years of expensive legal education, passed a bar exam, whatever, having folks who have not gone through all of that being able to provide simple legal services. Uh, it's, it's it's challenging. Uh, it raises significant regulatory issues, ethical issues, and the like. But if you can look at what what the state of Washington, for example, is called limited license legal professionals, others have different uh, states have different references for them. In order to provide legal services to individuals who can't afford a lawyer, no chance, then you can make important progress in the delivery of justice, and that requires an administrative regime that can really manage and handle those complex issues. But but again, experimentation is leading us to really new ways of thinking about about uh, delivering those uh, that kind of justice. I want to come around to this change management and leadership question, but I want to get to it by just telling us, you know, how did when did you decide you were going to go to law school, and and, and just tell us a little bit about your journey. So so I had. Uh, uh, you know, maybe maybe a little bit uh, uh, unconventional, in some ways conventional path. What's unconventional about it, I'll just say very briefly, is uh, I was a first-generation college graduate. I, uh, not only did I have no lawyers in my family, but didn't really know lawyers or really what lawyers did. And, and I benefited uh, by, as so many other folks have, in my position from mentors, from college professors and others who, who thought that I would have some talents and encourage me to think about law as a profession. I think the first uh, real lawyer I met, not counting the members of the faculty who taught me in my first year, was my first year summer job. That's how sort of disconnected I was from the, mm. the, uh, the, the, the legal profession. So in that respect, it was an unconventional pathway. The conventional part is I loved law school, True confession time. Uh, you know, I, I loved not only in thinking about the subjects and study uh, them, but but sort of the the kind of knowledge and the kind of interaction with uh, with uh, the rule of law, with uh, the nature and scope of legal institutions, with really the the, the justice system in, in some 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 important ways. So I uh, uh, never looked back with respect to uh, the value and the virtue of the legal system, imperfect as it is. And while I've spent most of my career in the legal academy, I hope that that's, uh, and trust that in my teaching in particular, and, and also to some degree in my scholarship, it's been about educating and training and also inculcating values in the next generation and the next generation of, of legal professionals. And I've had the great fortune uh, to teach at a number of law schools and also lead in, in my role as dean uh, two terrific law schools. So I've been able to to see uh, the legal academy not only from and the legal profession not only from the vantage point of someone doing research as a scholar, someone teaching students, but also leading complex institutions uh, toward uh, toward improvement in our uh, in our legal system. So what's it like being dean, especially in times when times are changing? I mean, here people talk a lot about law firms and they say, well, sure, you can be the CEO of a law firm and get it, but it's not like you're Jack Welch. I mean, it's even it's even tougher in a, in a law school, right? I mean, how do you how do you lead change in times like this? So so one one caveat, I, I, I've. As you mentioned in the introduction, I've I've uh, been a dean at two different law schools, but also at two different points in my career and over the course of many years. So what it was like in uh, being dean at the University of San Diego at the latter part of the last century, that long ago, and into the early 
uh, next century uh, is fundamentally different, not not only because it was a different law school, but a different time. So the last several years have been have raised some special challenges for legal education. Uh, there's been a downturn in applications to law schools. Uh, more generally, the costs of legal education have gone up. There's been changes in accreditation standards. This is not meant as a tale of woe. Change is difficult, and we're part of the part of the the dynamic of uh, of outside influences and pressures, including the kinds of pressures coming from that uh, law firms are facing, that have affected how we do business in uh, in, in, in law schools. It, it it is a difficult uh, position to be in, in that you are really uh, if you're really trying to be a change agent as I as I worked hard to be because you're mobilizing a variety of constituencies uh, you're mobilizing constituencies leading constituencies not compelling change but working with uh, your students who are who are who are anxious in many respects about what the future holds in terms of legal practice and they have reasons to be anxious but you're also trying to encourage them that the world is going to be bright for uh, for new lawyers you're working with faculty members uh, across the board, generational across the board, and expertise who range from folks who are very much at the vanguard of change, like yourself as a as a as a legal educator in that in that uh, in that cohort, uh, to folks who are resistant, to put it mildly, <laughs> uh, uh, and can't imagine that things should be different now than they were when they started in law teaching 20, 30, 40 years ago. And then we have the stakeholders, key constituents, which are those from the outs on the outside. The law firms who employ our graduates, hopefully, mm -hmm. uh, those who are in uh, regulatory uh, positions, from the ABA to the state bars to to other organizations, Association of American Law Schools, uh, uh, and such. And then uh, there's the general public, which gets forgotten in all this. That is the consumers, individuals who have a stake in our justice system, who are not often have seats at the table, but who I've always looked to be attentive to in the decisions we make because we're fundamentally trying to improve legal services and access to justice for consumers in our country and throughout the world, not just act in the well-being of lawyers uh, or law faculty or universities or all the other stakeholders who get sort of the pride of place, as it were, when, uh, when, we, uh, when we figure out in law schools uh, how to carry out our educational mission. Tell me more about some of the things that you did while you were at Northwestern. I mean, you know, you, there's the Master of Science in Law program, the Law Business Technology Initiative. I mean, what are the kind of things you would maybe encourage others at, at schools who are thinking about uh, undertaking their own endeavors in this space to that maybe they can look at as somewhat of a model for... So tempting as it might be to, to, to give you my resume as dean, I'll, I'll resist that temptation and actually focus, particularly given the nature of, the, of this conversation, the mm -hmm. program we're focusing on, on initiatives at the intersection of law, business, and technology. And that ha has been, from the time I began as dean at Northwestern, uh, probably the single most important theme uh, that I wanted to organize uh, my uh, leadership efforts around. The basic notion that lawyers for the future and those who, uh, and allied professionals as well, were going to need and want to work uh, not only as expert uh, in experts in law, but uh, folks who have expertise at the intersection of law, business, and technology. So just give you a couple exa quick examples. One is, is developing in our curriculum, in our academic programs, much greater expertise drawn in from the outside, uh, as it were, outside of our traditional faculty, but also utilizing existing faculty resources to provide more training and education in business and technology. Again, I don't want to embarrass you in saying this, but <laughs> your, uh, your work uh, at our law school and your unique skill set in drawing upon expertise in technology and business is a good example of, of the success we've had in drawing in faculty who can really look at the, the waterfront in a broader way. And that has, has certainly impacted uh, the expertise of our students, the attitude of our students in thinking about what it means to practice law when they uh, when they graduate. Second, and you mentioned this in passing, but I want to reiterate, we developed a unique program at, at the law school, a Master of Science in Law, sometimes called a Law STEM program, that's really about training uh, folks who are not going to aspire to become practicing lawyers. Uh, it's a one-year full-time program uh, that uh, requires that you have some STEM background, training, or education in that field. We have an enormously diverse uh, group of students. We've had 
about 300 students who have graduated from the program over the course of, of five years who, who will go out and be very impactful in their chosen fields. Maybe they'll go into business. Maybe they'll become entrepreneurs. Maybe they'll, they'll, uh, they'll become clients of law firms. Occasionally, they'll go to medical school. Some will even go to law school. But whatever their, whatever their, uh, their uh, avocation, they will uh, benefit from having substantial training in the law. That, to me, also is illustrative of the theme that law is not just about lawyers that the delivery of legal services and the work in the design of legal institutions requires a collective, energetic collaboration and, and conversation among a variety of stakeholders, not limited to, in no way limited to, individuals who are part of the guild, who are, who are trained and practicing lawyers. Now, that might not seem like a, like a remarkably innovative comment, but it is surprisingly rare in law schools where the business model has basically been about training individuals to be able to then go out, get a legal credential, uh, the appropriate legal credential, and practice law. So what we've tried to do at Northwestern, what I've uh, tried to work very hard on doing, again, in collaboration with many other stakeholders, is broaden the scope of what a law school means and what its educational mission is in order to train the next generation of folks to work out of their silos and across various disciplines. Yeah, you mentioned that when we first started the discussion about getting out of our silos, and there's silos everywhere. I mean, there are times now that I'm at the law school that that I kind of wish outside stakeholders would invite us and see the value we could add there. And I think we're doing hopefully a better and better job of illustrating the value that we can provide, bringing in outside people, but even just across the university campus. And I mean, I, I I'm wondering what we can learn from you there because I think that's one of the things that's one of the many things that's unique here at Northwestern is that the engineering dean, Dean Julio Tino, and uh, the chair of the CS department and several people in the CS department are really excited about this law and technology initiative. And, and there's great collaboration that's been, that you, you started building and, and probably started uh, in some ways even before that. But uh, I mean, how do you, I mean, how do we get more of that at, at different schools? And, and, and again, this is something I think we can learn whether you're in a law firm, like how do you, if you're in a law firm, it's just like, oh, I'm in the bankruptcy group and I don't really play well with the real estate group or what have you. How do you bridge those sort of gaps at, in a university setting? So the the let, let me evade the question just for a moment, but I, but I promise I'll come back to it. Uh -huh. First, let me answer the why we bother. The present and the future. The present is we need the benefit of multidisciplinary knowledge, and we need the say let's we in law schools uh, need enormously the knowledge and the perspective that's brought to bear by folks who have not spent their career in in law and in law schools but come from other discipline, cognitive disciplines, and even some that are more remote disciplines, like say computer science, or even the humanities, uh, disciplines in the humanities, who can really help enrich our discussions. We can't do it alone. So the de-siloing, as it were, that is essential, and being in and around a university, really any university, but particularly a university with you know the resources and assets of a Northwestern, is unusually valuable and necessary in order to enrich our program. The the more blue sky or the longer term uh, one is is basically making a wager on the fact that several years from now, and I'm not going to put an exact time frame, maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's 50 years, we're going to look back on this time and sort of wonder why is it that universities have a law school separate from a business school, separate from this part of a public, some schools have public policy schools and the engineering school just is about training engineers. We'll basically want to invest, and I think universities will, I predict, invest in much more breaking down those silos. We're already seeing that. Stanford University, as you know, has a design school, a D school, right? And, and that is purposely de-siloed. And it necessarily looks across the campus to folks who are interested in, in design. And it works with the law school. It works with engineering and all of that. So I think we're going to see that prediction. But I haven't forgotten about your question about the how. <laughs> the how is it's, it's retail work. And, you, and, and it's good that you, you, you mentioned, gave a shout out to the dean of the engineering school at Northwestern. There, if we had limitless time, we could, we could go through, <laughs> yeah. a, you know, through, a, through a, a checklist of, of, of individual folks. And if we were talking about a different university, we mm -hmm. could have a different checklist. But it's actually the human relationships. In my, in my work, 
collaborating on academic research with colleagues in other departments is something that I've done throughout the course of my career as dean in developing individual relationships with other deans, with faculty members. I know you've done that in your own work and, and that you occupy these, these, uh, these roles both in the law school and computer science is critical. I'd like to see more of that, more joint appointments, more joint conferences, those kinds of relationships because we can write all of the case statements in the world about the value of having uh, these uh, synthetic joint initiatives with other departments, but it's actually the human beings who understand uh, the value of looking out, looking up from their desks outward across the university and seeing the value in, in, in uh, if I may, playing in the sandbox that, that uh, consists of folks who, uh, who have their own disciplinary training in order to make that work. The next generation, let me just say this, of the students who we produce, particularly those who go into academia, will hopefully have the advantage that I didn't have myself when I uh, uh, graduated from law school back in the Stone Ages, which is the the advantage of having uh, exposure to education across various disciplines while they're young enough to be imprinted with the value of being T-shaped mm-hmm. and the value of being interdisciplinary. When that happens, then... It'll, the silos will take care of themselves. Then they won't have, they'll come from a de-siloed environment. And so they will have no instinct to resort back to their individual disciplines at the expense of, of trading and exchanging multidisciplinary knowledge and information. Well, so thinking about this collaboration in technology and law, there's a lot of discussion now about creating artificial intelligence that's trustworthy, that's fair. Uh, I see a lot of opportunities for the law and, and legal academics there. I mean, um, there's a fair amount of talk about ethics, but without thinking about regulation law, I mean, that, that can, that can be hollow. Do you, I mean, should we be in law schools spending more time really thinking strategically about what is the role of law in this digital world, which I think we're going to find ourselves in much quicker than maybe many in the law school kind of realize. So the short answer is absolutely. Yes, we should. Uh, what I might face a little bit is your your description of it as in law schools, because again, mm-hmm, consistent mm-hmm. uh, continuing with this theme of of sort of multidisciplinary cross university collaborations. I think this kind of conversation about things like trustworthy AI, mm-hmm. uh, what should be the overall regulatory structure, how to deal with the problems of algorithmic bias and other and, and other real issues, uh, necessarily involve conversations uh, uh, where lawyers together with technologists together with ethicists and those in uh, found elsewhere in the university setting, uh, economists certainly, mm-hmm. uh, should be critically important and are critically important in that discussion. This actually goes back to a theme that you mentioned before, which is the difficulty sometimes in translating what we do to folks outside of the law. We know what we mean, for the most part, in uh-huh. the law school when we talk about the design of legal institutions. And we train our students, educate our students in, in things like the corporate form. And the way in which the corporation, limited liability corporations, right, can create a necessary mechanism for the development of uh, of managerial paradigms and 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 that facilitate innovation. We we teach about the the kind of the contours of our intellectual property regime, not in an abstract way, but also but in a very concrete way. How what it means to create a patent and all of that. So we have all this knowledge that we share within the four corners of the law school, but. Uh, it's mostly remote and in many respects misunderstood by folks who are outside of legal education. But those are critical dynamic uh, forms. I mentioned the Master of Science in Law program a moment ago. Let me come back to that. I have had the privilege really every year since I've been at Northwestern to teach our students, the incoming students, the legal and regulatory process sort of a a kind of a bird's eye view of the structure of our administrative process, structure of our legal process, how the constitution operates. It's fascinating to do that. Uh, And what I've really aimed to do is to give some exposure to how the law fits in with innovation and how our legal system and our legal structure facilitates innovation. And let me be clear, it's not just as a cheerleader. There are enormous faults and flaws in the structure of our of our existing legal system at the national, at the state, at the local level. But understanding how those legal arrangements and legal institutions, public sector, private sector, everything from the Constitution 
to uh, to how local zoning boards deal with uh, land use issues is critical in understanding how innovation takes place and how technology advances in uh, in society. So I think we need to have those kinds of conversations in order to to circle back to your question, really engage and grapple with things like trustworthy AI. Because once we settle on an understanding of what it means to say uh, artificial intelligence is or is not trustworthy, that's where the fun begins, if I may. That's where we get to the stage of saying, okay, what kind of devices and institutions should be created about it? What should be the relationship among and between levels of government. How should the judges and the, the paradigm of judging fit in with uh, the creation of these of these kinds of mechanisms and all of that? And, and, and it's not like I this is this is we're starting tabula rasa. There are a number of really interesting innovations underway, as you know, both in the United States, elsewhere. Canada is doing some interesting things. Uh, there's a development out of the University of Toronto that I'm sure you know about that's really looking at this. There's enormous amount of financial investment that's going into this. National Science Foundation, mm-hmm. thankfully, is supporting a lot of this work that we, of course, would like to be part of at Northwestern and other kinds of institutions. So there's a lot of work going on. Getting the lawyers to have a principal seat at the table is a challenge, but it's a surmountable challenge. And uh, and I think we're going to see greater efforts along that way. Yeah. Well, a lot of this comes back to, to communication and developing relationships that, that you talked about. When I go out and talk, I, I try to get people, convert them to Twitter as a platform, actually. And, and that's well, only you're preaching, what... <laughs> preaching to this choir in, this, in, in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, tell us, I guess, a little bit about that. How would you, what would be, and, and we're, we're, we're coming to the end here, yeah. but I wanted to just kind of give you a chance to talk about, I mean, that's another way to communicate our message to a broader audience. Uh, I was talking, you know, the blogging, writing in these, um, more accessible places. Uh, as- so I'm a so I'm a later convert than 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 some others. So I can give you the maybe the uh, you know as as they say the the later converts are the uh-huh. most uh, evangelists in in this respect. So I'll say that that you know I spent much of a lifetime writing legal scholarship, writing law review articles that that uh, let's face it, not that many people read other than other than folks in the mm-hmm. you know in uh, who are working in that area. And I'm, I'm proud of that work, mm-hmm. uh, but it does run the risk of creating an echo chamber where you're basically writing for for other experts in, uh, who, are, who are deeply embedded in the discipline. What what mechanisms of social media, Twitter as one example among a few, and I'm, I'm certainly not at the cutting edge of that, uh, so uh, does is it enables you to reach a larger audience and also a more diverse audience. And it also creates the discipline of doing so in uh, in a relatively short format. So I, I use Twitter in a fairly conventional and not particularly creative way, I, su- I suppose, sometimes in linking to, uh, to other folks' uh, research, uh, retweeting uh, really interesting uh, uh, observations, and also uh, uh, research from, from other folks, and making the occasional comment Hopefully not impolitic, although I've I've made my mistakes like <laughs> other folks have. Hopefully not too many of them, but to try to get the message out. Mm-hmm. And so I'm appropriately careful in not rendering legal advice as anyone as a lawyer should be in in, in using social media on the one hand, but but I've also been been deliberate as have so many of my other colleagues. Hopefully more and more of them in seeing this as a conversation. And, and I should also say, it's not just as trans. I, I, I tend to, and, and Twitter followers will understand this comment, I tend to have as many folks I follow as followers. And so that I'm learning from folks mm-hmm. who are also engaging on Twitter and other social media and trying to get out of my own echo chamber, really trying to get out of it by, by listening to and reading from a diverse set of audiences and, and enabling us to facilitate that conversation. I'll just make this one last point. It's from those social media uh, uh, connections that I've often got the opportunity and invitations to be able to speak before larger audiences, uh, solicitation of, of some writing that I've done. So it becomes you know, a kind of an open uh, a forum for the kinds of conversations that develop, as I'm sure your own experience uh, uh, demonstrates as well, uh, enables us to make the kinds of connections that lead to that 2.0 and 3.0 kind of conversations that go well beyond social media and become really constructive in important ways. Last but not least, I also use those platforms as a way to champion the work that we're doing at Northwestern Mm -hmm. and also to, to, to push out the content of folks whose work I greatly admire. 
Yeah. Well, Kevin O'Keefe has been making that point for a long time, talking about just the, the, the way lawyers can use these platforms, but the way any leader, any manager can to uh, promote their organization, not, but not just promote, but to recognize others inside of their organization, especially when you're playing the role as a dean or other leadership position. I felt that important too, too and I'm glad, I'm glad you reminded me of that because I, I neglected to make that point before. One of the, the, the ways in which I, I helped facilitate change management as dean, and so many of my other dean colleagues do, is to be a champion of the work that's done within our law schools and within our universities. So it's not, uh, it shouldn't just be about the leader. It should be about the way in which the leader helps catalyze the really important work that's being done within their organization, their institution. And social media is one among many mechanisms in which that, uh, in which that work ha- has done. Uh, here's an off the wall comment. I had the great privilege of leading a podcast through Legal Talk Network uh, for some period of time, as some of our listeners will remember, called Planet Lex, which continues on at Northwestern. And that, too, was a, a wonderful opportunity to to uh, to bring together folks who were associated with Northwestern, as it happens, but from a very diverse set of audiences, to get sort of their messages out and, and, to, and to broaden the scope of the conversation uh, uh, around the uh, – Around it's not the blogosphere, the podcastosphere. <laughs> I don't know what the right phrase is, but among among eager listeners, how's yeah, that? Yeah, well, and that's. Uh, I mean, I heard many excellent episodes in that podcast, and I'm just excited to have you joining us here on Law Technology Now podcast, and and look forward to us being able to do something like this again, and look forward to all the great guests you're going to bring onto the program. Well, uh, yeah, let's end where we started. I'm, I'm glad to be joining as, a, as, as one of the hosts in this esteemed uh, group. I, I know that uh, I want to hold up my end of the of the bargain, and, and the way I'm going to think best to do that is to really to bring some interesting guests and have, uh, have really interesting, valuable, impactful conversations. Well, thanks again, Dan. Looking forward to working with you. Thank you. This has been another edition of Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And join us next time for another edition of Law Technology Now. I'm Dan Linna, signing off. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.